This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my, had my. Welcome to the Tamariki Book Festival. On this programme, let's meet the authors and illustrators of the Tamariki Book Festival. Petita, sixth of the seventh stellar mermaids, raised her hand and snapped her fingers. The large crab scrambled up to regain his position on her shoulder. He had a crack in his shell and he'd lost a leg. With some effort, he spoke. Platita, sixth of the seventh stellar mermaids, says she will have the speciality of the house, the blancmange à la bleu. The kinner looked shocked. Surely you, that is to say, I'm afraid that needs to be pre-ordered three months in advance. The kinner moved backwards. What about a jelly? Identical to the one served on the Titanic, the last meal, wouldn't that be? The last meal, said Platita thoughtfully. Hmm, that phrase certainly has a pleasant ringlet, uh, I mean ring to it, but no, I've never been the one to take the easy option. The kinner's spikes stiffened. Uh, so it's Blumange à la Bleu, the castle-shaped one I had last time. Platita's voice reverberated around the restaurant and her plaits swung around the kinner's spiky head like a giant lasso. Don't forget the garnish. Do I make myself clear? Of course. What garnish did Madame... I don't care, said Platita. I just want Garnish! A meal is not a meal without an expensive frippery dangling somewhere. She tapped a blue fingernail on the crab's shell and he disappeared, returning seconds later with an exquisite tiny mirror. He climbed up onto her chin and wedged the lizard tail handle between folds of skin. Platita, sixth of the seventh stellar mermaids, studied her reflection. Even perfection needs retouching, she said, so I need to visit the ladies' room. When I return, we'll sort you out. Felicity Williams is a Christchurch native. She has an amazing background in the performing arts and owns and operates Canvas Bag Drama School. She's written hundreds of plays and operettas for children and also wrote the children's television show The Dress-Up Box. Her serialized stories have appeared in Family Times, and she published her first children's novel last year. Kia ora, Felicity. Hi. We're so excited to have you join us for the Tamariki Book Festival this year, and I'm especially excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Your book that you just read from is about a mermaid, and I'm intrigued. Why mermaids? Well, I've always been enchanted by fantasy characters, and there are four main worlds that we have. We have pirates, we have knights, the whole castle historical thing, we have mermaids, and we have fairies. Those are four very established, broad worlds that you can delve into. But I wanted to subvert the expectations always with this story. So... um, It's not about brushing your long golden hair and singing. I wanted to create characters that were funny, um, and that's what I um, did when I read. I read the villain part. I read um, the villain ordering a dessert in a restaurant, and hopefully, some of the background is in that was in that reading. Awesome. So how do you develop your characters um, if you're subverting this trope and, you're, and your mermaid is not brushing her golden hair <laughs> and looking in the mirror? <laughs> um, what is she doing and how do you build her as a character that is um, 
that is um, interesting to children. Yes. Well, working in the drama school gives you a, a little privileged intrusion into the world of the child. So you are aware of what 8 to 12-year-olds like. And actually, even with all the technology that we have access to, the original worlds and tropes still stand strong. You just have to bring them up to date with your language. Now, um, this novel was very firmly based on a, hero, a typical hero's journey f- format, which is quite a wide format in, at the best of times, but it doesn't mean certain things have to happen. It does mean that your heroine has to have a quest, that she is Uh, confronted by all sorts of things that would see her not succeed, that she does succeed, fail somewhat, succeed again, return home, and the world is a better place because of what she's done. I set it under the sea because it gives you rise to a whole dynamic of description that you can develop freely. Awesome. Awesome. Um, So I suppose we should make sure that we say what the title of your book (laughs) is, because I don't think we've said that yet. (laughs) Ringlet and the Day the Oceans Stopped um, was one, the title we chose from a page of, you know, um, suggestions. Um, And... Of course, it gives you a good idea. It's like a, it's like just a tiny tagline for the whole story because the oceans do, in fact, stop for a day. Oh. <laughs> but it's a book about um, not only the, the story about the oceans actually stopping, it's really a book about the value of imagination and the restlessness. The great eternal restlessness is fading. So saith the prophetess, the prophetess to Ringlet. And it's about the importance of restlessness, of freedom of thought, of not sticking to accepted rules. This is incredibly politically appropriate (laughs) at the moment. It is. Um, And I so love it when children in my drama class will find a way of doing something, of interpreting something that is their way totally. Mm -hmm. That's the reward. Excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm. So, how does that drama? You, how does that drama um, experience and the, your experience with the kids really feed into your your novels? And well, um, that's really interesting. I think we all have to have um, a degree of research in our writing, as you would know, of course. Uh, and I've just finished. I'm halfway through. Actually, I haven't quite finished it. Philip and Voices, which is a collection of all the essays and talks he's given, dating right back to 2000, and one that I particularly loved um, is called um, A Path Through the Forest. And he talks about your story being a path, and you must not leave that path. But he talks about the research and the story world, a realm full of possibilities, backstories, and this is your forest, which you can delve into. You can spend as long as you want in the forest. You can go there, but you can't leave the story path ever because otherwise your readers, Philip Pullman says, will simply put down the book and go and find something else to do. So I love that. I love the research that my canvas bag drama school. I love the forest it provides, Mm -hmm. and I'll often pull out something that someone has said years ago um, from the forest, but I will not leave the story path. Like Little Red Riding Hood, I can admire the flowers, but I will not stray off the path to pick them. <laughs> Excellent. And do you do you test out your story ideas um, on, on the kids that you I, um I don't as such at the start. Uh, near the end, I did have a whole beta group of children who read it and made comments, and I do work very closely with 
my editor, Anna Golden, who was my editor for the first book, and I've got a relationship with her now where she can um, look at my drafts. She's actually looked at the plot of the second novel, and now she won't get it till I've got a first draft. So that's incredibly important. Mm. Um you don't have that much confidence that you're on the right track sometimes. Right, absolutely. Mm. Um, so you've been writing for a long time, um, since you were a child. Tell me a little bit about your early influences on your writing and, and your early publishing success. Well, it was that little poem, isn't it, that I published. I won, I won a wee poetry competition when I was seven in Tehran, and um, I never forgot that. And it was just a little... I could rhyme and write rhyming couplets quite easily. But I grew up uh, with the discipline of piano and music lessons and the relentless pursuit towards the first beat of the next bar in music is what drives classical music forward. And I owe it a great debt. I owe it a huge debt because a lot of the music you learn when you're little has got a fanciful name. And I remember a piece around grade four called The Demon Goblin. And... That piece, it was, that was all there was. There was no story attached. But I made up the story in my mind. I could hear him galumphing along the track. I could hear him snatching at things. And so all through my life, music was a huge formative influence with the structure it provided. And it's not really mu that much different writing. And so I did a music degree in composition and often wrote things that were theatre-based because I liked the actual writing of words alongside the music. Mm. So that that's how that all ties up. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, you lived for a year in Tehran, is that right? When I was seven. And yes. tell me tell me how that's influenced your... Well, it was a huge life-changing experience. In those days, people didn't really travel. In 1962, and uh, it was a very modern cosmopolitan city, and my father was with UNESCO, which in itself is amazing because... His job was to make science education accessible for people in the villages, teachers who had nothing but a piece of string and a stick. Mm -hmm. And he actually had the ability to do that. He could, um, you don't want to say get to that level because that's not really what it was. It was actually being able to open people's minds to doing things with what you had available. So it was a life-changing experience and for a little six-year-old, seven-year-old girl. And later we did repeated the experience in New Delhi, and that was um, difficult again, but it does change the way you see the world, and it makes you... Uh, my father loved, in 1962, racial diversity. He thought it was the best thing in the world that we had a birthday party and we were the only Caucasians. That, that was ahead of its time, I think. Mm -hmm. So we grew up with that. And mm -hmm. so naturally to find an undersea world where everyone's different colours and different species mm -hmm. uh, and they get on and some don't, some do and some don't. It's very reflective of the real world as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, your father, uh, you mentioned him, he was, um, he was a scientist, right? Mm -hmm. um, d has that science infiltrated your writing as well? His, his he was influence? a scientist and he was a classical musician. So yes, you hugely influential mm -hmm. to grow up with that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, your uh, that synergy between the music and the the drama and the and the writing for you. <clears throat> I had a pivotal year in 1988 when I 
uh, was received a residency from the Queen Elizabeth Arts Council, it was called then, and I became composer in schools nationwide. It was an incredible opportunity. The job doesn't exist now. These things come and go. You make the most of it at the time. And I was in schools working to compose music for uh, children. And the teacher would say, the clarinets only know five notes. But next week they'll know six. (laughs) They'll add B flat. (laughs) And that's a total and amazing leveller. That you can meet the brief to write music that is socially... Um, accepted or educationally appropriate. And I didn't only write the five-note stories for the clarinets. I realised that children were a lot more engaged when you added theatrics. So if you're writing a piece of music about a tanifa, then get them being the tanifa. Um, Get them being the tanifa from uh, hatching out of the egg, whatever you decide to make the birth experience, Um, (laughs) going down a river, uh, encountering rapids, um, finding something to warn not to come near because that's the whole point of a tiny farm, not to go near the raging water and do the whole thing and the music would reflect that and I could develop both scripts and music looking at how the children use their bodies mm-hmm. because it was totally natural to them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome, so that do you find that same use, those same ideas in your writing? In the same- I do Mm-hmm I do, because with the, with the Mermaid book, The Mer World, I prefer to call it The Mer World, um, actually I had to develop a whole new vocabulary because you can't stomp off, you can't walk somewhere, and you've got swish, and you've got, you might get away with flutter. So you had to develop um, a whole vocabulary of, of being and, mm. and colour. You can get a few blasts of yellow coming through from the upworld sun, but you know, generally speaking, that's quite a, was quite a challenge. And often in mermaid stories, you'll have a child or you'll have a mermaid that emerges and sits on a rock. And well, mine aren't. They don't. They have gills. They can't really survive out of the water. So there's your challenge. There was no respite, really. And that's uh-huh. a good thing. It really challenges you. Um, you probably get better writing when you wa- work within a confine that you set yourself. Mm-hmm. So how do you, your characters, you know, they're living underwater, how do you develop them so that they are relatable to to kids? How, do, how are, you know, how is your mermaid like a human, I guess? You she's know, an you... average um, 11-year-old. She's a, she's 11-year-old. She's an 11-year-old girl, opinionated, um, kind of um, a bit selfish, um, but always incredibly kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have to have flaws in a character to make them interesting. So she definitely wasn't perfect. And she has a best friend called Chignon, um, who's obsessed with making lists and tidy <laughs> and structure and formalities. And so they play off each other. Mm-hmm. And then you have the villain, um, who is evil. That's all there is to it. Anyone that wants to shut down people's right to free speech is <laughs> evil. So um, so basically you've put a put an 11-year-old girl into the sea, hey? Yeah, I have. Absolutely. I really have. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Actually, I'll add something. Yeah. It was C.S. Lewis. I thought it was Oscar Wilde, but then I found out it was C.S. Lewis, who said... The reason I write children's stories, because of course he did write the most fabulous 
um, children's stories, perhaps dated now, but still. Um, that's Philip Pullman who said that, not me. I tend to agree with him, though. C.S. Lewis said, The reason I write children's stories is because... I won't get this totally correct. They, they are the very best art form available for saying what I want to say of importance in the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. So why do we write a child's story? Why did I put Under the Sea? Because my story is about the nature of restlessness and the importance of creativity. The oceans are never still. When they do stop, it's catastrophic. So it presents... A children's story, a young, oh, it's middle grade fiction, um, why set under the sea? Because everything is constantly in a state of movement. And that was the best environment for highlighting what I wanted to say of importance, mm-hmm. which one never comes out and says. One never has a theme. So do you find it um, easier to, to say something important um, in that fantasy setting? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, because the last thing you want to be is worthy. Mm. Mm-hmm. You don't want to give children a message. They have to take what they get from it. Right, right. Um, So what are you working on next? Well, I am working on a sequel to this, which is I am at the plotting stage, which is incredibly frustrating and difficult. Um, And I'm also working on a junior fiction series um, of early, of junior novels about um, another opinionated girl and her friends who... Uh, have an old suitcase and that is the vehicle for going to different places in their imaginations. So that's mm. yeah, two things. Oh, that sounds really exciting. Um, so um, how do you make things you, you say you want to you, you want to get across a message but you don't want to you, you don't want the kids to think they're getting a message? Mm. <laughs> um, how do you how do you walk that line? Within um, within your stories, or well, my editor will tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I think is it called writing on the nose? Mm. I just know now, mm-hmm. and I think you engage with characters if you like them. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make them likable, and the way you do that, as I said, you have to have flaws. Mm-hmm. There's not perfection, but there has to be likability. So. That's the challenge, and that's what you need to learn about. Um, And I learn a lot by, I think the best thing for me, I haven't done a writing degree, I did a music degree, but the best way I learn about this is by having a really, really full and rich listening and reading experience. So I would have maybe three or four books on the go at the time. I'd have an e-book, I'd have a real book, I'd have an audio book, and then I'll have non-fiction. And so I um, go between them. So Mm -hmm. that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. So what, what advice would you give to kids who are um, tinkering around with writing and thinking about, um, you know, creating themselves well, something? You have, a ma- you have things like the Young Writers School here, and that may suit a lot of children because you get feedback. Some children may prefer not to do that. They may prefer, I think you, they have to just write. You simply have to do it. And then you have to read it out to people. Might be your family, might be a teacher at school. You have to self-publish. Children do that at school in a classroom. How do you um, how do you uh, propose that they get over that fear, that natural fear of sharing their work with other people? I think that's up to having a really experienced and sympathetic practitioner who creates an atmosphere. We do that in the drama school. We have children come in at the spectrum of absolute extroversion whose parents say this is they're dressing up all the time, 
and we have children come in with who are ultra shy and and that's incredibly amazing for them to be in that atmosphere where they can actually just learn to contribute. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's it's fun. It's really amazing seeing the self-growth that takes place when you can contribute an idea. There is no such thing as a bad idea ever. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for coming by and um, talking with me today. And we really look forward to seeing you at the Tamariki Book Festival. I'm looking look forward to it too. We look forward to the fun stuff we know you're going to do. We will have a bucket of slime. <laughs> Ooh, excellent. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for coming out. Come along to the Tamariki Book Festival, November 22nd, in the Tūranga TSB space, 10 till 4 Check out our podcasts on the Plains FM website. Just search Tamariki Book Festival. Mm-hmm.